For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening, everyone. Well, it's good to see everyone here. Everyone, I know everyone here. But I know everyone on the screen. Erin, it's nice to see you. It's been a while since we talked. Um, I have some notes. I didn't really give a written out talk, so this could. Uh, a little disorganized, but uh, it's a, a topic that's difficult. And actually, I find almost all Dharma talks difficult because, you know, the Dharma is a seamless okesa, and if you tug on one thread, you tug on the whole thing. And it feels like if you want to talk about one little small isolated topic, you end up talking about all of Buddhism, which seems excessive for a Dharma talk. But what I wanted to talk about is something that I've been thinking about uh, since, uh, during and since the practice commitment period, and that is the question of dualism, which uh, is referred to regularly in the Vimalakirti Sutra, which we read during the and discussed during the practice commitment period. That's a concept that I don't recall seeing too much in the sutra, Indian sutra literature. It's something that's had a lot of influence in, in um, East Asian Buddhism, especially in uh, Zen. The whole issue of, of um, thinking in uh, binaries, dualities, So, so, I've been thinking about that a little bit and uh, trying to uh, just recall places that have talked about that and, and wondering if there's anything useful about it. I, I thought um, one place I would start is uh, start with a koan. Talk about a koan about one out of every three Dharma talks. So we have one here. This is case number six from the Blue Cliff record called uh, Yunman's Every Day is a Good Day. Um, it's very short. So Yunman said, I don't ask you about before the 15th day Try to say something about after the 15th day. Nobody said anything. So Yaman answered himself for everyone. Every day is a good day. 
every day is a good day. How could how could he possibly say that? That um, you know, if your uh, mother or spouse or child dies, uh, you might have a hard time saying that's, that's a good day. If you have a car accident and lose an arm, probably hard to consider that a good day. So what is he talking about? And that's particularly, if you think about it, that's really, um, it, his answer is a little more complicated than that. Um, but obviously he's not saying it um, flippantly. Uh, Yunnan is one of the great Zen masters of Tang China. He's the last, maybe the last of the really great ones. He has of the hundred koans in the Blue Cliff Record, 18 relate to Yunman. And in the hundred in the Book of Serenity, eight relate to Yunman. And in the Gateless Barrier, 48 koans, there are five. Um, so we have to take it very seriously. And, and he wouldn't be flippant about saying something, oh, every day is a good day. Yeah, ha Lost my art. It's just great. Um, he, he just, he would not. He was familiar, completely familiar with suffering in the world and personal suffering. He lived from the middle of the 9th century to the middle of the 10th century as the Tang Dynasty that was falling to pieces. Public order uh, was a disaster. Bandits were everywhere. Um, provincial governors and generals were becoming warlords and taking over vast areas and declaring themselves uh, emperors themselves and uh, kings. And um, there was a huge amount of social and economic disruption with all the other suffering that that involves as systems break down and many, many, many people died during that period. Um, it's called the Five Dynasties or Ten Kingdoms. But beyond that, um, Yuman himself had had a certain amount of suffering in his life. He was ordained at a, as, a, as a young boy, as was customary. Parents would, for one reason or another, you know, getting rid of a mouth, one more mouth to feed or to, for merit, to have a son in the monastery generating merit that he could dedicate to the family. Uh, was a good thing. So he was he was um, placed in a monastery at a very young age, and he ordained when he was twenty, which was the ordinary age for ordination. And he practiced at a monastery that specialized in the Vinaya monastic discipline. And he did that for eight or ten years, and he um, he became famous for his scholarship and his uh, excellent lectures. But he decided that he um, that was not you know, talking about how we should follow rules wasn't really helping him solve the problem of his personal suffering and, and how he should live beyond that. And he was advised to find his Zen master, and he found the famous master uh, Mojo. So Wujo uh, was a quirky guy, like so many of those masters. He um, 
he didn't brook fools lightly. And when monks would come to his room to ask for instruction, uh, they'd knock on the door, he'd open the door, and before they could say anything, he'd grab them by the lapels, by the collar of their, their gown, and shake them and say, speak, speak. When they couldn't say anything, he'd throw them out the door and say, what a waste Slightly do <laughs> So one man uh, did that. He, um, he did it. He came to Mujo's uh, room and uh, knocked on the door. Mujo opened the door and grabbed him by the bell. Speak, speak, say it. Nothing threw him out. What a waste of time. Next day, Dinman came back, did the same thing. On the third day, obviously, Bujo could recognize his step, and he said, well, yeah, who's that? And Dinman uh, said, well, it's me, Yunman. Uh, I, I need to speak with you. He said, why is that? He says, well, I, I'm just not clear about my life. So Bujo opened the door, grabbed him by the lapels, and said, speak! Speak! And he didn't say anything, so he pushed him out the door. But Yunman, in order to keep talking, had stuck his foot in the door like a traveling salesman. So <laughs> and Mujo slammed the door, maybe not noticing that the leg was still in there, and he smashed Yunman's leg, and it was not set properly, it didn't heal properly, and he was lame for the rest of his life. But it, when, he, when the door was slammed on his leg, that was the impetus that sort of shook him loose from uh, being caught up in discursive thinking and feeling and judgments and desires just to be, ow, right here. And he became intimate. He had an opening right then. So he spent three more years with Ujo. Uh, Ujo was very old, so he said, well, you need to go talk to someone else. So he moved to Shwefan's monastery. We've talked about before another truly great uh, teacher. But at any rate, um, so you can see that that Yunman isn't likely to have given a flippant answer. Oh, everything's okay. Everything, it's all good. No, that's I don't. You know, if given that pain in his leg, his inability to walk properly. Inability, difficulty, and inability to sit in the traditional posture during meditation. So you have to wonder, well, okay, what's 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 this answer supposed to be? And you think about it, you go, okay, um, if every day is a good day, then there can't be any bad days. But good and bad only have meaning in relationship to each other in our usual thinking. If there can't be any bad, if there aren't any bad days, there aren't any good days either. So Yudman said, okay, um, when, you, when you wake up, uh, live every day is a good day, which means throw out good and bad. Throw out like this one. And that's that's a position that that's the how our tradition has continued to act. 
duality is our central problem and somehow we need to get beyond duality. And probably the most, you know, the most elegant statement of that is in a poem by the third Chinese ancestor, Sensan. Uh, you know, it was Bodhidharma, then Weka, then Sensan. And his poem is called Trust in Mind or Trust in Heart Mind. And probably some of you have heard it or read it before. It begins The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to preferences or who don't like or dislike or don't pick or choose. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. Live neither in the entanglements of outer things nor in inner feelings of emptiness. Be serene in the oneness of things and such erroneous views will disappear by themselves. It, the poem is, is really very uh, eloquent and very helpful. It's another two pages or so. And I recommend it highly. It's chanted pretty much daily in quite a few Zen monasteries. And um, the entire problem is, is the problem that it talks about is the problem of of dualism and dualities, and, and as I said, the dualities of this and that, uh, me and the world, good, bad, right, wrong, uh, you know, like, dislike, uh, and how those, um, not say that, that, um, our likes and dislikes and our suffering from liking some, not liking the world as it is, wanting it to be different, which is that strain, that um, frustration, that anxiety, the difference between the way I want things to be, the way I think things ought to be, and the things, the way things should be, is dukkha. Um, but the poem would never say that oh, well, we have these desires, you know what, and we operate, live the way we do in a dualistic way with these desires uh, because we're, we think we're a self. And we do, you know, we live in these dualities all the time. There's a traditional set of, uh, there's a list called the eight worldly winds, the main preoccupations, likes and dislikes that, we chase around or that cause us to run around and that uh, cause so much suffering in our lives that are, which I've tweaked a little bit, is um, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, 
shame and fame. All of those are the things that the main things that we are trying to grasp or to push away in our lives all the time. But the interesting thing is um, the poem, Trusted Mind, won't say that, well, because you have uh, started feeling like a self, now you feel, now you have these desires because you need to protect yourself from love, you need to validate yourself because you're feeling insecure and vulnerable. This is separate, the self that's separate from the whole world it's being acted upon by the whole world and other people. The position of the poem is different. It's like everything in Buddhism, everything arises, co-arises dependently. And our sense of being a self arises because we have these preoccupations and things we like or dislike. And when we see them, we get obsessed <coughs> them. We focus on them. We become preoccupied with them. And the world becomes... That object of my thinking, my object of desire, object of emotion, uh, in me. I'm the subject that thinks about this thing, that desires this thing, that has an emotion about this thing, that has a judgment about this thing. It's a good thing, it's a bad thing. It's a good thing, a bad thing, a right thing, a wrong thing. So they, and... Um, so while it's certainly true that because we feel that we have the self, we have we have these preoccupations, we have these emotions, we grasp for things, which uh, turns them from just uh, what would you call it, phenomena that we perceive in the world, our attention to them, our preoccupation with them, our zeroing in on them, is what gives them heft and solidity, so that they really are solid, independent, fixed things that we want or don't want, or uh, definite, separate processes. Anything that we, that we experience, anything we can think about or perceive or desire, Everything, all of that, desire, uh, thought, obviously, perception, desire, judgments, all of those are on a foundation of conceptualization, which always, a concept speaks to things as these fixed separate entities. It's an abstraction. A single concept can't really capture everything. It is a thing, it just is, but it's this fixed, it's a fixed class of things. But it may help us identify something and focusing on it, but I, and actually perceiving it. Buddhist philosophy would say we don't really perceive something until we've given it a name. Um, unless we've identified it conceptually. So that puts us in a sort of interesting position, right? Because it, it means that everything, we perceive everything in this way, these fixed things that are separate from each other. But we, it doesn't really become, come home to us until we are, become attached to them and grasp them through uh, desire or some sort of aversion, or even pulling on things from the 
object of perception and we're pushing them away. And in doing that, they become real and I become real at this one point. Um, the, the poem is beautiful in talking about that and how that happens. Um, and how, you know, the advice is, well, you just have to stop. And uh, the obvious question is, well, how do I do that exactly? And it doesn't give it an, an answer. In fact, it, it tells you that, you know, an attempt to stop thinking this way or feeling this way and perceiving things, an attempt to perceive the ultimate nature, that itself is, uh, you know, dualistic thinking. It's a gaining mind. And it's done the whole, it's opened the whole gate to the whole process again. It's just, you know, I, I want to fix this. I don't feel right. I want to, I want to understand the Dharma. I want to stop this dualistic thinking. That just is more dualistic thinking. It just continues the whole process. So, uh, what would he say? Since I said, uh, yeah, if there's even a trace of this and that, of right and wrong, the mind essence will be lost in confusion. So the whole idea that, well, I've got this confused mind, I would like this awakened mind. I'm, I really don't like this deluded, suffering mind that I've got now. I want this awakened mind, clear mind, joyful mind, mind of ease, uh, of enlightenment, sukha, I want to taste nirvana. That in itself is keeping us from experiencing um, another great, you know, the other thing, the, another line from the Buddha is make the smallest distinction that heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. So heaven stands for everything, any kind of distinction, opposition, any kind of dichotomy that we might set up in our thinking. But it also, heaven and earth are standing. Um, our standard classical Chinese representations of the ordinary, everyday reality and transcendent reality, reality of awakenings. Those are set completely apart. You can't get there from here as soon as you start thinking about it. It's here and there. I don't like it here. I want them to do that. So how do we get there? And Senzan doesn't tell us. He just says, well, you have to stop doing that. I think that to find out how we, you know, and, and I think it's so, to understand how we, what we do and how we might deal with that, you really have, I think you have to look at Dogen. And so we've been at Thursday morning sitting and discussion. We've talked a lot about Fukanzazangi. And Fukan Zazengi is my favorite place in which Dogen talks about how you deal with it. And what's very clear is if you, if you, just, if you take a quick look at Fukan Zazengi, it's clear that he, know, he knows this poem perfectly and he even takes pieces of it. You know, he just he talks about, you know, 
in order to realize awakening directly, you have to you don't think good or bad. Do not judge true or false. Give up the operations of mind, intellect, and consciousness. Stop measuring with thoughts, ideas, and views. Have no desires on becoming a Buddha. How could that be limited to sitting or lying down? If there is a hair's, hair's breadth deviation, it is like the gap between heaven and earth. If the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. Those last two sentences are quotes from Nathan Hartman. And the earlier part, don't think good or bad. Don't judge true or false. Give up the operations of mind and electric So stop measuring the thoughts, ideas, and so on. And when you do, when you do, your original mind before, before your parents were born will appear. Or ultimate, your true, ultimate reality, who you are. Um, that also is when you do that, the original face first, the part before that is also um, referring to sections of faith and harmony. So Dogen is very clear about the problem as well that he wants us to understand the problem that we just talked about there and that Sengzhan's talking about. Well, if you're trying to get from here to there, if you're trying to get from delusion to awakening, you're just perpetuating the whole problem of dualism and your own delusion and your whole and your confusion and you're creating suffering for yourself because you're unhappy with where you're making yourself unhappy with you are you longing for something that you're not getting to it's just perpetuating your suffering so what becomes clear is we can't get there by at least in our tradition the tradition would say we can't get there in a just by doing something to get there for example, the, the traditional Buddhist model of meditation of doing concentration, set, stopping and seeing, which is the Tiantai version of meditation that Dogen would have learned, of focusing on an object to quiet the mind and then opening up to see to a broader awareness of the world. And, is there, sort of shamatha and vipassana meditation, that will work. And that's why Dogen says later in Fukanzazi that the Zaza I speak of is not learning meditation. It's not something I can figure out. It's not a skill I can develop by learning to concentrate and then learning to open up my mind. You have to make, you have to just set aside your thinking. You have to just sit here and be with this, whatever it is. And that's hard for us to do because we have thoughts churning, we have feelings churning, memories, uh, fantasies, some pleasant, but many not pleasant. And we have to sit there with equanimity, without, um, with patience, with endurance. And, um, yeah, equanimity, not 
which is sometimes translated, it's a, it's a technical term, but it's, it can be translated as, as calm, uh, sometimes when it's used, and other times it means um, not attention, not picking out something as, des as desirable or undesirable. So we have to do that, and we can't make an effort. Dogen says, "You, this is, this is, where is that? This is not the, uh, yeah. You have to go beyond learning and be free from effort in practicing your zazen for, for zazen to mature into true zazen." Um, So we have to sit and just be prepared to be here. Not to sit here in order to become calm or to have some realization or to become awakened or to become a better person. Our challenge is just to sit and be with whatever is here. And that could include brilliant, insightful thoughts about the Dharma. It could have Thoughts about how angry you are at your sister for doing something incredibly stupid, whatever. That's part of the reality right here as well. And at some point, as our mind settles, and as we truly do that, relax into being right here, um, we take a turn, and we are no longer sitting there with a mind that is looking out at the world. We wake up to all of this, this whole world um, that we are part of. We are in this world. Um, that also means that you are not in involved with, you're not attaching to, attached to your thinking, you're not attached to your desires or perception, any perception of any particular thing, you, you don't, you're not attached to your emotions, letting them come and go, letting them come and go, and just sitting right here with all that, just being here in the middle of your field of awareness, whatever that is, it's not a technique, it's something that we can and Dogen calls that, you know, it's not, uh, it is not meditation practice, it's not learning meditation. It is simply the Dharma gate of joyful ease, the practice realization of totally culminated enlightenment. So in our activity and sitting, we, we attain totally culminated enlightenment, enlightenment and through this practice of joyful ease. And joyful ease is a phrase that is used as an alternative, it's sukha. Sukha is ease or joy, um, peace, bliss, and it is the opposite of dukkha, the opposite of suffering. It is therefore nirvana. So sitting in zazen, non-thinking, letting things come and go, not exercising any effort, not trying to 
change our state, feel a certain way, understand a certain thing, become a certain person, is itself a taste of, even in the middle of, of unpleasant thoughts and feelings, it is nirvana. And that, I think, is what, um, what Yenman is saying, that um, every day is a good day, means that, you know, it's not really appropriate to say this day is a good day or a bad day in any conventional sense. That's just conventional speech in its deluded speech and its deluded thinking. Um, every day is a good day because it, it is the reality of, that encompasses everything. Good things, bad things, painful thoughts, peaceful thoughts. Beyond good or bad, it is the good that transcends good and bad. So it's fair for him to say <laughs> every day is a good day. I think I'll leave it there. And you, all of you have read Fukan Zazengi dozens of times. So. I'm interested in what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you. I always appreciate your talk so much. Um, I asked Titan this question many years ago, but I forgot what his answer was. Uh, why don't we chant that poem? Uh, is that a, a Rinzai? Is it Rinzai? I love that. It's more traditional than Midsight. Uh-huh. I, I, I said, why, why isn't it in the chant book? Right? Yeah, and in the Harada Yasutani tradition, because of all the Midsight influence, they would chant it there. It's wonderful. I can't do that. Yeah. Simona, did you have something? You about to uh, say something? Yes, but I was scratching myself. But ah, <laughs> well, now you you are stuck. You have to. Speak. But I guess I had something. Um, uh, no, I wanted to thank you. I've heard a few talks from you at this point, Dr. Talks, and it always feels like going on a little bit of a journey, um, where you you start from one point and I start to have questions, and you answer those questions before I can ask them. <laughs> through. Actually, it all comes I hope so. I hope you can. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, I'm, you started from good and bad and um, going beyond that. And I thought that for me, the hard part is falling into the nihilism uh, of, of being indifferent to things when you try to not be attached to good and bad. And then I thought, well, that can't be the strategy because then you, or, or you fall into being attached to the attachment, and it's still more attachment, right? As you said at some point. So as I was thinking that you addressed it live, <laughs> and, you know. Well, I think I think that um, the problem of nihilism is addressed because, uh, as we sit in zazen, and we have that experience of of being in the world and part of the world, um, we're not separate from other 
beings in the world. So we're not maybe connected with them exactly, but we're certainly not two. We are certainly in separately, separately with them, intimately with everything. And and so um, you know, I think that's one of the chapters of the Bhagavad Sutra that talks about that a lot. That 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 as a result when we when we have some intimations maybe of what it's like to step outside of our ordinary grasping and deluded mind. Um, we want to help the suffering of, of other beings who we are intimately with and not separate from. So it's always an us. There's never an, it's never an I and a you her, it's always, it's an inseparable, inseparable us. So we respond to our suffering. Thanks. Being exercising in attention and compassion to feel like that. <laughs> so I was just wondering more about the candidates and and similarly, just mentioned compassion fit into this. Because I didn't hear those words. Um, <laughs> any of this so far? Uh, I think that uh, in the case of compassion, it comes because uh, when we wake up to what says is the original face before our parents were born, and we have that. We discover that intimate weakness with all beings and with all things that we feel compassion for the suffering of the world. I think um, I think that um, vow, vow and repentance are a vow to. Um, Not to become separate, something different, really, but to to learn to uh, enact what really is, and where we have lost our way to to acknowledge that and return to the effort to become what is real, what's something different than what we are in our delusion on one hand and our on the other at the same time. This is maybe a follow-up to Hobetsu's question. I'm wondering where, I'm okay, what, what the right word is. So the Sanskrit word in the Hindu tradition is, is tapas. It's the heat of devotion. Maybe maybe this belongs inside vow, but I want to say something like gumption or passion. Yunman coming back to Mojo's, uh, Mo, Mojo's room three nights in a row. The, at, at least, at least that's an instance where the where an instant where the teacher was not trying to hurt the student. That was an accident, by which his leg was broken. Um, I, I dislike stories where um, where people get hit on purpose. Um, but what I mean is that so many of these stories talk about a kind of passion you know, persistent, 
well, the, the, the thing that brings that brings back, you know, again and again, the people who are sitting here, that thing. Um, how, how, do, how do we talk about that, that passion for practice? Like, what are the, what are the, where it, it, does that all belong in vow, or is there some other, like, way that we talk about it in this tradition? So, I think vow would capture part of, part of it, but I don't, I don't recall Soto's in speaking about a passion for practice in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, Wholehearted. Yeah, mm-hmm. the heartedness, but yeah. Wholehearted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unreserved, undistracted, delivering oneself completely to the practice, which is not the way to get someplace. It is it is the practice. Mm-hmm. It it is the it is uh, the practice realization of complete perfect enlightenment. It's that whole activity of sitting or of slicing vegetables or answering the phone or whatever. Thank you for your talk. Um, I heard, you know, set aside mundane affairs and, um, you know, let go of good and bad, true or false, right or wrong, let go of the self, let go of, you know, self-preservation. And um, it seems like not a way that we could live full time. I mean, like, so I'm wondering, you know, your thoughts on how we bring this state of non-duality to our lives where we, we do have a self that operates in the world and that, you know, wants to exist. And um, I think we, I think that's not an, an easy question to answer. And for lay people, it's particularly hard because we don't live in an environment that is structured for that to Around that, precisely that. I think, um, you know, um, there will always be um, thinking and emotions and judgments and so on. I think that our karma, our conditioning, will always make that be true whenever we hit the right causes and conditions. But we can always take the backward step um, with the, and act then from that space. I think, you know, um, we don't seem to talk about it much or at all here or, or very often in Soto Zen, but talking about um, coming back to this moment where the, there is thinking, but acting not from that thinking and not from those feelings and desires, but acting from the heart. Rabbi Anderson talks about that a lot. And Rinzai people talk about that a lot. They don't talk about it too much. I think that, that learning to act wholeheartedly is very much our practice, to recognize when we are thinking and then to return to this 
moment and then act. I appreciate that. I think um, I have also appreciated some of the difficult things that have happened to me in life, you know, since I started practicing, um, because it's kind of forced me into a place of, you know, where you kind of take that turn between, please don't let this be happening, to like, oh, okay, this is happening, and, and realizing that, like, you can expand in that happening, you're not... You know, you're you're still connected with the world in in that thing happening. Um, you know, just like there's a, there turns out that there's a lot that you can do with that thing that you don't want to be happening. That um, that feels very fruitful to practice. Um, I'd be interested in hearing I think more. That's right? I sort of think that, yeah, I think that I think that that's is the teaching of yeah. yeah. So and to not be changing. with it, yeah. whatever it is, yeah. And, to and be with is, the good and the bad, mm-hmm. our experience of good and bad. It's not philosophical. No, no it's, it's like what Asian's talking no, about. It that's comes why. up and we it's learn to see. Like today's a good day. And. Uh, but I and I think that you know that's uh, an important part of our practice is that uh, Shanti, that practice of being with the difficult. Um, tolerance for the difficult, endurance of the difficult, not turning away from the difficult. Say, try not trying to mask it, but say, yeah, that's part of it's part of this. Yeah. One thing that patient said that was maybe like shifting point of view is. When, it, when she said, I realized something, oh, this is happening. And it's kind of like when you feel like you don't have the control of some situations. That's the big catalyst of just being like, okay, I either make something good out of what looks bad, or and I flip this, or or else I'm just struggling the suffering. Like, as you said. Yeah, I don't think the issue is that we don't respond. No, no, no. But... Um, in a naive way, but but we don't react out of attachment or aversion if we can. We're prepared to stay with it rather than push it away. Mm-hmm. I think it's still okay to prefer it not to be that way. <laughs> sure, we will, but we. But I think, don't you think that's different from being caught up in? Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so of course, kind of different. Of I just, you know, I, just, I don't want to. I don't want to give anybody the impression that you know that that, that, that equanimity is about not caring. You know, no, like, equi- like we can still prefer that we not be in pain. But, equanimity does but not mean that you will not that you will always feel good. Yeah, you will feel yeah. bad, yep. but you have to be able to be with that. To the extent that you can, it's not something that I think we can say I'm prepared to sit with it, but it's not. That means you sort of recognize you're there and you've recognized the issue. 
But so much of our practice is not something that we do, it's something that happens, that we wake up to it and recognize that something is, and we respond then to what we have recognized once we have waked up. But that waking up is not something that is within our control. And suddenly we go, oh, I've been, I've been distracted, now I need to wake up. Well, by the time you say, I've been distracted, you've already waked up. So that's something it's kind of interesting yeah, you're, you're to do. You have to wake up to realize that you've been distracted. Yeah. Um, but you can wake up to realize that you feel, <laughs> you can re- wake up to realize that you feel awful. But I think that, that that's all, you know, one of the, re- our practice is going to be endless because our life is going to be endless too. It's part of this world that we wake up to and hope and practice aim at letting be and expressing but you know the things that keep coming this should we seek out intense sudden physical I don't <laughs> no I don't think so I think that it wasn't the fact that it was physical pain. It was the it was the suddenness of the physical pain that gave him this surprise and jolt. I think it interrupted his thinking. So that's good for him, but not. Might not be for everybody. Yeah. And also, did he say, "I'm going to go here and have this guy stand?" Right. right. And that wasn't that wasn't something he did with his students. He was famous for for dealing with students in very short phrases, like every day is a good day, or just two or three words, is what he was famous for. He was like the other great Zen teacher, Zhao Zhao, who was not the crazy guy cutting cats in half or hitting people or slapping people or screaming at people. Yeah, yeah, it's a famous story. Okay, interesting story here. <laughs> 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 another time, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, so he didn't do he didn't do any of that stuff. Um, you know, you have to aside from the, all of the abuses and the harm it could do to people, you have to wonder really how really how how often did that work? What would that mean to just you know? And it's just yeah. And you also have to re- ask, how often did this really happen? These are not historical records. These are these are literature. They're folk tales. They're talking about people who have transcended duality, and right and wrong, and good or bad, or the ordinary, conventional, and and the transcendent. So of course they're going to act crazy. You know, some of that is that. I think we're getting close to wrapping up. Yeah. So we'll say that. Somebody online wants to say something? Nobody has any last comment? Hi, hi it's Nicholas. I, yeah, I'm just, it's, it's a great talk, it, interesting discussion, and it's, you know, the, you know, the terrible, awful truth that every day is a good day is a um, 
sometimes it's very invigorating to embrace that idea and and, and sometimes it's it's hell right and and just the idea i think it's not very important to for me to always uh kind of incorporate the idea of the two truths the conventional reality and uh ultimate reality which is what we're really talking about ultimate reality but that i am a conventional being and i can um cultivate compassion for that fact that i'm a conventional being who often gets caught but i can investigate my thoughts and embrace these big ideas of ultimate reality and free myself up you know because you know reality is like gravity it just happens and doesn't care <laughs> and uh, it's a lot easier to ride the horse in the direction that it's going, ultimately. Right, well, so, you're right that uh, we have to compare. We have to have compassion for the, our conventional. Right, and we we can have compassion for our pain too, and for our, our right. you know, not oh, I'm a being who doesn't want it this way. Well, I can also have cultivate compassion for like, oh yeah, that's suffering. That's dukkha. You know, that's tough. You know, it, it's, I mean, this is the work, right? What, what we're talking about. Um, yeah. So I just really appreciate the discussion and the talk. Thank you.